Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in American Politics. Today I'm speaking with Michael R. Gordon about his new book, Degrade and Destroy, the inside story of the war against the Islamic State, from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Michael is the national security correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the former chief military correspondent for the New York Times. Degrade and Destroy is the first comprehensive account of the National Security Council's internal meetings and strategy for fighting the terrorist organization known as ISIS. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, you know, this is a, a really fascinating book that I think is on a topic that, that many people uh, took a lot of people's attention uh, over the past decade or so. Uh, and this book really is a, is a great a great summary of, of the events of the past eight or nine years in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I would just like to, uh, to know if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, um, Caleb, to, um, I didn't start out to cover military affairs. Um, when I began in journalism in 1976, I was covering the United Nations for a small publication uh, there. Uh, so I was interested certainly in foreign policy. And then later I moved to Washington and was at National Journal Magazine um, and was covering initially political economy and deregulation, uh, working with Bob Samuelson. I believe my first article was on trucking deregulation. And the at that time, though, um, with uh, the election of President Reagan and the Reagan administration, uh, there was a massive uh, military buildup. And the National Journal Magazine at that point um, didn't have a Defense Department uh, beat and so I volunteered to do that, and that was my uh, initiation into the world of defense planning and military affairs and uh, eventually military operations. Uh, initially, a, a lot of my emphasis was really on U.S.-Soviet relations and arms control and um, nuclear uh, weapons treaties, such as the INF Treaty. But um, with Panama, uh, I covered that um, that operation, and then I began covering one subsequent to that. So uh, by the time up to now, I've done seven of them in the field. And my approach has always been that you can't really cover these uh, sorts of uh, massive events insightfully solely in Washington. There has to be a Washington dimension because you have to do the shoe leather reporting to understand what the deliberations are in the NSC and the State Department, Defense Department, and the like. But you also have to be on the battlefield because you have to understand what really happened and what the reality was there. Sometimes there's not much correlation between the reality and the battlefield and some of the policy debates in Washington. Sometimes there is. And what I've sought to do in these books is uh, combine the two and fuse them together and co- put together what I saw, for example, in Mosul, during the fight there to take that city back from the Islamic State and the deliberations that were going on inside the White House with uh, Presidents Obama and Trump. And that's how I've approached things. Following up on that point, how did you write this book? You know, who did you speak to? What documents did you read? Uh, What what was your general writing process like? Well, this is the first book I've done without General Trainer, who uh, unfortunately passed away at age 89, and he was a retired three-star Marine general who was my partner for my three previous books. The first one was on the Persian Gulf War. It's called The General's War. The second was on the invasion of Iraq, Cobra II, and the third was a massive history of the whole American military occupation and war in Iraq called The Endgame. But uh, this was the first one um, by myself. But I really followed the uh, pattern of that uh, McTrainer and I had laid down in the past which is that from the beginning, it was never our intention to be the first book out of the gate. It's so hard to do these books. The events are so complicated. Um, uh, There's always more going on than meets the eye. It takes some digging and some sources and context to put the whole story together. So our intent was to be a book that endures. There's no one book about a war, but we wanted to be one of the books If anybody wants to know about the fight with ISIS, um, uh, there are a number of books to read, but this has to be one of them. 
and uh, and the same with the previous books. So that was always our intent. Um, what does that mean in practice? What that means is um, you have to be in the conflict and covering the conflict, and then immediately after it's over, talk to everybody who is involved. So that means American generals, coalition officers, Iraqi personalities, Syrians, people in the NSC, people in the State Department, talk to as many people as possible, go back to them repeatedly to try to pin things down, access um, however one can, notes of meetings and, and documentation, and put it together. And there's really a myth about, um, a lot of people have, about, about how these wars will become known in history. And they say, oh, 20 years from now, we'll know what really happened. That's not true. Uh, 20 years from now, all the key figures who uh, wage this war won't be around anymore, and their memories will have faded for those that are around. And so much of, of these decisions, so many of them, are, are done in these secure video teleconferences. They're not done in long diplomatic cables, civets. And if you don't access these people immediately, um, it's really hard to get at the inside story of what happened. So the approach uh, Mick Trainer and I always took was to report really fast and persistently, but to write slow and methodically. And that's the approach I took in this book. It took me six years all in all, although I did have a day job at the Wall Street Journal and New York Times while I was putting it together. Something that I found uh, sort of interesting, this didn't isn't about your book, but when you type in Iraq war into Google, the war that comes up is not the, the conflict from 2014 to 2019, which is the subject of this book, but rather the conflict that took place from 2003 to 2011. And I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the relationship between the Iraq war between 2003 and 2011, and then also the war in Iraq, aka Operation Inherent Resolve, that you focus on in this book. Well, um, the war against ISIS uh, was really a logical extension of the Iraq war, which I covered also, and I was part of the cadre of journalists that were embedded for that conflict. And, 2003 and followed it through through all of its twists and turns. But uh, what happened was uh, uh, that war, um, from a military standpoint, uh, was basically uh, reasonably successful. I know most people don't think it was, but it was. Um, the U.S. made a lot of it, uh, big mistakes early on, uh, immediately following the invasion um, in terms of um, disbanding the Iraqi army and how it pursued things in that country. But after al-Qaeda in Iraq became a very serious threat, the U.S., through the surge, and that was under General then General David Petraeus, was able to pretty much beat back the AQI, al-Qaeda in Iraq, threat and establish a modicum of stability in the country. And really it was a success in doing that that enabled uh, President Barack Obama to uh, reduce forces in that country, something Obama himself has later acknowledged publicly. So, um, but there was a strategic mistake that was made at the end of the conflict, and it was made by both the United States, the Obama administration, and by Iraq, Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. And that was, they failed to come up with a diplomatic understanding that would have enabled a residual force of several thousand U.S. troops to stay behind, not to do the combat, but to mentor the Iraqi security forces, uh, to uh, keep an eye on the threat, to um, push back against sectarian behavior in the Iraqi government, basically to keep things on track. So uh, a SOFA agreement, which was was what it would, would have been. And when they failed to do that, all American forces left at the end of 2011. And I was there for a lot of that. And everybody in the Iraqi military and the U.S. military understood that things were going to start to unravel a bit, absent some presence of a small number of American troops to mentor and advise and train the Iraqi troops. But the deterioration was uh, really faster than most people would have anticipated, partly because of the um, civil war in neighboring uh, Syria. 
And so what happened is in the absence of American forces, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq morphed into a new organization, although with many of the same leadership, much of the same leadership, um, the Islamic State, uh, took advantage of the chaos in Syria and began to uh, expand its reach in Syria and Iraq. Um, there were American military officers who saw this coming and warned against it, but the White House was basically um, trying to put Iraq in the rearview mirror and uh, was largely oblivious to what was happening there until the fall of Mosul in June of 2014. And that was the shock that led uh, the Obama administration to send forces back to Iraq, although in an entirely different capacity. Can you talk a little bit about General Major General Mike Nagata? Uh, what was his role in, in essentially leading U.S. troops back to uh, back to Iraq? None. He was uh, his role was he uh, was the head of uh, SOCSENT, which was the uh, special operations component of Central Command. And in um, February 2014, he went to Iraq uh, along with Colonel Chris Donahue, who was head of the uh, Delta Force. And they were went there pretty much to take the measure of the Iraqi forces, specifically the counterterrorism service, and to see the threat they're up against. And both reported at the time that um, the Iraqi uh, forces were having a very difficult time contending with this new threat. Uh, but these uh, messages which were sent up the chain of command didn't resonate in Washington, but um, they did in the Delta Force. So what happened was in this U.S. special operations community, they began to make plans for what they thought would be the inevitable return of American forces to Iraq in some capacity, even if it was just small special operations units or advisors to contend with this emerging threat. But um, the political leaders didn't come to that um, conclusion until the fall of Mosul in June of 2014, an event which came as really as a, a rude shock to the White House at the time. Can you talk a little bit about the, the fall of Mosul? What, what happened in this event and what was what was the, the, the ramifications of this? Well, the reason Mosul was such a shock in Washington was uh, it proved two things. It showed that this ISIS force was... Uh, more capable than um, many in Washington had thought. I think uh, Colonel Chris Donahue understood it because he had been in Iraq in 2014. They were sort of like Al-Qaeda in Iraq on steroids. But it also showed that the U.S. had a very uh, uh, limited understanding of what was happening with the Iraqi security forces. And the reason Mosul fell so quickly was not merely that... Uh, ISIS was more formidable than people had anticipated, but that the Iraqi forces had deteriorated to an extent that was not well understood in Washington and had terrible leadership. And so when ISIS attacked, uh, there was basically the uh, Iraqi, uh, two divisions of Iraqi army troops essentially uh, melted away and left the, the city uh, in enemy hands. And all of this was... Um, exacerbated by tensions between the Kurdish politicians in northern Iraq and politicians in Baghdad. They were unable to work together, but it led to um, um, an outcome in which uh, Mosul, second largest city in Iraq, not a small place, you're talking about a substantial number of people. Well, when the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, brazenly entered a mosque in, in Mosul and went to the pulpit and delivered a sermon. So, I mean, this is in all the days of Al-Qaeda, um, you know, Osama bin Laden or any of those Al-Qaeda types had never marched into a, a foreign capital um, and delivered a very public address to a large throng of people defiantly um, thumbing their nose at the leadership in Iraq and the world community. So that's what happened in Mosul. And, um, it led to a, a lot of high-level deliberations in the Obama administration about uh, the terms in which the U.S. would would come back in. And President Obama was, you know, he had campaigned on the uh, premise that he was going to turn the page on the war in, in Iraq. I, the uh, phrase that he and Ben Rhodes used to um, deploy was the tides of war 
are receding. They didn't relish going back into this conflict. So what uh, he stipulated was the U.S. would not go in to do the fighting on the ground. We would not send ground combat troops back to Iraq, but rather we would advise and enable the local partner forces to do the heavy lifting on the ground. And by and large, uh, that's what happened with a few exceptions that the politicians in Washington didn't advertise, but which occurred nonetheless, in which the U.S. did get involved in ground combat. But by and large, those were the exceptions. That was the basic framework. But it really took a couple of years for um, decision makers in Washington and generals in theater to evolve a strategy on how the advising would take place, the extent of the airstrikes, the structure of the command. And really what Degrade and Destroy is, it's a, it's a story of how the strategy was put together while the war was going on, a little akin, uh, to use a, a bit of a hackneyed cliche, of building an airplane in flight. I mean, U.S. advisors were sent to the country, but in a very constrained role. It took two years for the accompanying authorities to emerge where they could go onto the battlefield with Iraqi forces. And that's really what what my history is about, um, how the war was fought and how the strategy was elaborated uh, in the midst of that war. So, you know, after Mosul, uh, you know, two things, you know, one, what, what was Obama's initial reaction? And then, you know, afterwards, you talk about the, uh, the, the Delta Force. Uh, who's, who's the Delta Force? You've mentioned them, them already. Uh, and, and what role did they play? Uh, in the re-engagement of conflict in Iraq? Well, President Obama, unlike his successor, was a, a pretty disciplined and careful uh, person who um, not prone to impulsive decisions or emotional outbursts. But as I was able to document in this book, the, the fall of Mosul and the threat that ISIS presented in Iraq and also to Obama's own foreign policy was such that it led to a, um, a previously unknown episode I write about in the book where he confronted the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and General Dempsey and General uh, Lloyd Austin, then the CENTCOM commander, now our Secretary of Defense, and kind of reamed them out and said that, uh, uh, why didn't they tell him this was coming? And, uh, you know, how, how he had been let down, the country had been let down by the failure to anticipate this uh, this uh, development it was a bit unfair because um, if you had left it up to the generals and including uh, then General Austin, the U.S. would have kept troops in Iraq. It was the politicians in Washington and Baghdad that didn't conclude uh, the SOFA agreement. But that was his initial reaction. It was great frustration. And, you know, I had interviewed uh, then-candidate um, Barack Obama in Chicago when he was running for president, and ending the war in Iraq was his one of his uh, signature issues. And now he was going to have to reopen another chapter of U.S. military involvement in Iraq. So it was a setback for his Iraq policy. It was also a setback for his Afghan policy because his um, strategy in Afghanistan was very much modeled after the one in Iraq, which was to consolidate forces diminish their numbers and reduce them to there were nothing more than a staff at the embassy in Kabul. It, it obviously it didn't work very well in Afghanistan, but, um, but he was forced to revise that as well. Uh, that said, um, uh, President Obama did step up to the challenge, and he understood that the U.S. couldn't just wash its hands of the conflict. In addition to stipulating that we weren't going to send ground combat troops to Iraq, he uh, laid out another requirement, which is that the Iraqi government would have to change. Nouri al-Maliki would have to go. There'd have to be a government that was more, less sectarian. And by that, I mean, um, you know, the Shia were always going to be the dominant force in Iraq after the U.S. intervention, but one that was more inclusive and um less uh, abrasive in terms of its policies towards the Sunnis. So that was a requirement involved for involvement, and that took a little time to um, sort out. But he did stood up to the challenge that the U.S. would have to go in and fight ISIS, although the administration's initial plan was that this would be done over a 36-month period. It didn't initially see 
ISIS as capable of external operations or launching attacks in the West. It came to that assessment changed on the Parliament administration, but he, he did um, he did um, send troops back. He was also prepared to take um, action in Syria um, early on, although at first it was confined to um, airstrikes and not to uh, troops on the ground. And I explain in the book and at the Pentagon, it, when you have a major war or a major intervention or a major operation, they call it an aimed operation. It has a name. And it, it's not just to have a slogan. It's because it becomes a mechanism for asking for resources from the Congress and uh, soliciting allied support. And they went through a whole um, um, exploration of potential names for our reinvolvement in Iraq. And uh, initially, uh, some of the names that they came in the military, you can't just name something. There's a naming convention and it has to begin with certain letters for certain commands and it has to be only so long. They came up with a number of possible candidates. One was um, Iraqi unity, notwithstanding the fact that the rise of ISIS uh, was an illustration of lack of Iraqi unity. Another one was Iraqi resolve, notwithstanding the fact that Iraqi forces essentially fled from Mosul and hadn't shown much resolve. Um, and while they were um, trying to um, settle on a name, somebody pointed out that this wasn't going to be in Iraq only because ISIS capital was in Raqqa, Syria. So they eventually came up with Operation Inherent Resolve, OIR. That's the formal name of the campaign against ISIS. And by the way, uh, this operation exists to this day. Just this week, there was an operation in Syria in one of the refugee camps to look for ISIS elements where the U.S. worked with um, the Syrian Democratic Forces. And the other month, there were drone strikes against ISIS commanders. So now, while ISIS has certainly been defeated by any sort of reasonable measure and its physical caliphate doesn't um, exist anymore, the operation still still continues. There's still 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq. There's still 900 U.S. troops in Syria. You tell us to most people, they don't seem to realize it. And certainly hardly anybody's ever heard of OIR. It's a bit of a digression, but um, that's that's what uh, President Obama, to his credit, um, uh, took on. Now, on the Delta Force, now they didn't get a whole lot of publicity during the war because it's a secret organization. It's classified. They don't have embedded reporters. They don't seek a lot of attention for themselves. But they deployed very early on under Chris Donahue, Colonel Chris Donahue. That's a name that might be familiar to some people because he was also the last man out in Kabul uh, a year ago uh, and got some attention for that. And then he later led the 82nd Airborne back to Poland after the Russians, uh, while the Russians were preparing to invade Ukraine. So he's a notable figure. But with the role of the Delta Force, although it operated in the shadows, was very important. They deployed in northern Iraq. And they understood very early on that if this campaign was to succeed, uh, one would have to deprive ISIS of its oxygen. And its oxygen was the the flow of foreign fighters and volunteers that streamed into Syria and northern Iraq. And to do that, it needed a partner. And, uh, well, there were partners were hard to come by. The Iraqi army was in a state of upheaval. Um, The... Kurdish Peshmerga in Iraq um, had uh, taken it on the chin by ISIS. So they forged a relationship with um, some an organization most people had never heard of, the YPG, and uh, General Maslum that persists uh, to this day. And it was that that relationship was forged in August 2014 in a meeting in Suleimaniyah, which is a town in the um, eastern part of the Kurdish KRG the Kurdish area, semi-autonomous area in Iraq. And those, I get into that in some detail in a chapter in the book called Talon Anvil, because that was the the, um, the name of their uh, operation. Um, but uh, that was really a, uh, an absolutely essential to cementing the uh, the victory in, um, in Syria. So what happened is, you know, you, you had the kind of conventional war, 
You had the U.S. advisors working with the Iraqi security forces who had to be rehabilitated and eventually make their way to Mosul. And then you had the sort of war in the shadows with the Delta Force and U.S. Special Operations Forces who were working initially clandestinely and then later more openly with General Maslum and his Syrian elements, and which later became the, um, the dominant uh, um, initiative that the U.S. Uh, had in Syria to uh, cement the defeat of ISIS there. So once they established this partnership, uh, what, what was the, the, the initial campaign like? What, how, how successful uh, was this, uh, let's say, the, the, the first year? Well, first, we have to acknowledge how extraordinary it was to establish these partnerships and how complex that could be. The slogan that they used to describe the campaign was by, with, and through. It's a, it comes out of the special forces community, but basically what it means, the, the war is fought by the local partners with U.S. support and through a kind of policy and legal framework. And this was by, with, and through on steroids. But let's look at the partners, part of the complexity of this. There's no one partner. Uh, the Iraqi security forces is a melange of forces. There's the Iraqi army, there's the counterterrorism service, which the U.S. created during its occupation and which is the best of the lot. There's the federal police or FedPol as they were known by the military. So these are the three principal elements of the Iraqi forces. They all report to different ministries. They're not under a unified command. The U.S. had in coalition because it wasn't just U.S. There are other coalition partners there too you know, Brits, Italians, French, others, had to work with all these different elements, not only to advise them, but to get them to work together. Then you have the Kurds. Okay. You got the Kurdish Peshmerga. Uh, They don't work well with the Iraqi security forces to this day. There's a lot of tensions between these two groups. So, but you had to have advisors with the uh, Kurdish Peshmerga to, um, not only help them, but to facilitate the inevitable kind of interaction and coordination between the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish Peshmerga. The Kurdish Peshmerga are also not one thing. They're also split into different camps. There's the KDP camp, which is the Barzani wing of Kurdish politics, which is basically the dominant political wing that governs out of Erbil. There's the Talibani wing that was anchored in Suleimania and the PUK party. The introduction to the Syrian Kurds was made through that wing, the Talibani wing and the PUK. But you had to work that problem as well. Then you had to establish relationships with, well, we didn't have a Syrian proxy or partner, so that had to all be created and forge a relationship with the YPG, um, and uh, which took some some doing too, because um, uh, General Maslum was willing to be a partner for the U.S., but um, the U.S. had to lay down some boundaries. Um, uh, they couldn't uh, accept a situation where they created a statelet in northern Syria because that would provoke the Turks, as it turned out the Turks were provoked anyway or allowed themselves to be provoked. And it had to insist that Maslum uh, include enough uh, Syrian Arabs that it wouldn't be a purely Kurdish force, which which he did, although it was a Kurdish dominated in terms of its leadership. All of that is sort of um, when I was covering the Iraq war, uh, there used to be something called human terrain teams. It was con- uh, controversial in the academy. It was basically American sociologists who helped the American military puzzle out who the tribes were in Iraq. So they at least knew who they were dealing with. Well, there's a sociological element to this. You had to not only advise these different partner forces um, militarily, you had to understand who they were, uh, deconflict or help them work together, avert human rights issues, um, all of that. Uh, that was much of the work of the first part of the war, just establishing those kind, establishing those kind of relationships. Um, in terms of the war fighting itself, um, a number of things happened. First, uh, when the war began, uh, as I mentioned, uh, when President Obama sent advisors back to Iraq, they were initially the 
his administration was extremely risk adverse and it was willing to send advisors back to Iraq, but didn't want them to get out in the battlefield. So they were pretty much restricted to operating within the confines of large bases and giving their dispensing their advice long distance. Uh, that didn't work very well, but over a period of a couple of years, by uh, June of, uh, by mid, uh, by the summer really of 2016, after a lot of importuning by the generals in Iraq, it had evolved to the point where the advisors were now allowed to go onto the battlefield uh, with the Iraqi forces, although they weren't supposed to get caught up in the fray. They're supposed to stay a little bit back from the front line. So that was something that happened in the early part of the war, but it was essential to making this strategy work. Another thing that happened is the air campaign was elaborated. Initially, it was very tactical and focused on defending the front lines and picking off ISIS gun trucks, this, that, and the other. But the Air Force began to press for expanding the um, boundaries of the air campaign. They wanted a deep fight. They wanted so-called strategic strikes. They wanted to be able to take on ISIS command and control and economic targets and oil tankers and something they called bulk cash storage, but which you and I would call banks. And that also happened over time. That part of the campaign um, was elaborated. So um, it took a couple of years for this campaign to really gain traction um, because it took a while for the advisors to get on the battlefield, for the air campaign to be expanded. There were also what uh, the Washington called force manning limits, troop caps that were constraining. Uh, they were meant to be a device for Washington to guard against uh, the U.S. slipping into a quagmire, but they became a bit of a hindrance when you're trying to do this kind of expeditionary advising on a um, such a vast scale. Um, so it kind of the campaign kind of moved a, a bit in fits and starts. It was a, a pretty significant setback when ISIS followed up its seizure of Mosul by seizing Ramadi, uh, which was the capital of Anbar province. But the administration stuck with it and uh, stuck with the strategy. And over time, it began to gain traction. A Something that really concentrated minds in the White House was when ISIS carried out uh, the terrorist attacks uh, in Paris in November of 2015. And up until then, um, there had been a notion in Washington that, you know, ISIS was a little bit like the Taliban. I mean, they were like, a problem for the people who live there, but they weren't a problem for us or for the Europeans. But after these terrorist attacks happened in Paris and uh, they were traced back to a planting cell in Manbij, Syria, there was a lot of anxiety in the White House and uh, a sense that we didn't have all the time in the world to let this campaign unfold. We really had a step on the gas. And President Obama was one of those who was Initially, he was very cautious and methodical and careful and, and deliberative, but, and he never relinquished those traits, but he, he also began to say, hey, we got we to gotta move faster because, uh, you know, if there was a, another terrorist attack in Europe or in the United States, it would have changed things considerably. So it began to gain traction after a couple of years, partly because the advisors were allowed to operate more efficiently and... Um, and the air was expanded, and also partly because Washington uh, became more concerned about the pace of the campaign and wanted to speed it up. Outside of Iraq and Syria, two, two major stakeholders in the Middle East region are Israel and Iran. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the US, what U.S. relations were like with Israel at that point in time, and then also on the other side, what, what the uh, U.S. and Iranian relations were like uh, you, you talk about uh, about Qasem Soleimani in particular, who's obviously a name that people will recognize as the, the man that, that Trump killed uh, about two years ago. Uh, can you talk about Israel and Iran? Yeah. Um, let me start with Iran first. Um, uh, so while the Obama administration was wrestling with how to approach the conflict in um, against ISIS and the terms in which we would send back advisors and the authorities the advisors would have while all that was going on the Iranians just moved in they were there before the U.S. was and they were there they began to send arms to the Kurds to the Iraqis advisors 
they sent up a drone base in Camp Redcatcher, which had been an American FOB, which has to be the first time in history the Iranians operated from a former American military base in Iraq. And um, they were there to help the Iraqis push back against ISIS and also to expand their own influence within the country. And initially, early on, there was a live and let live policy between the United States military and the Iranian Quds Force operatives who were led by um, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, he was in Iraq. We were in Iraq. Uh, we didn't go after them. Uh, they were backing uh, various militia groups. They didn't go after us. Uh, but there was not a partnership. We didn't directly coordinate with them. They didn't directly coordinate with us. I do recount in the book, and this hadn't come out before, that there was an actual meeting between a Marine one-star general, uh, Robert Castelvi, now retired, and, um, and a very capable officer, and Qasem Soleimani himself. And it was held at Union 3, a joint headquarters for the Iraqis and the Americans, just across the street from the U.S. Embassy. And what happened was a senior Iraqi officer, Abdul Amir, had said, hey, I got a visitor. I'm bringing him into this command center. And Castelvi and others were there. And it turned out to be nobody, none other than Qasem Soleimani himself. And what they talked about was, you know, the disposition on the battlefield and who was where and that kind of thing, what was going on. So it was all in the context of deconfliction as opposed to coordination. And... Uh, that was the early nature of the uh, relationship. Uh, what happened was once ISIS was on the verge of being defeated, and once it was essentially largely defeated, the Iranian attitude shifted. And they, they said, okay, the Americans have basically done the, the hard work of dropping all the bombs and rehabilitating the Iraqi forces and, and uh, making sure ISIS is defeated. Now it's time for us to expand our influence in the country, and it's time for the Americans to leave. And at that point, the militias they back in Iraq began carrying out rocket and drone attacks. This continues, by the way, to this day. I just had a story in the Wall Street Journal um, the other week about an attack on the Antomf garrison in southeast Syria, which is a U.S.-controlled base that was carried out by an Iranian-backed militia in Iraq, which flew drones, Iranian drones, from southern Iraq to attack this base. But the Iranian approach changed, and with it, so did the American approach. And as you pointed out, Qasem Somali was later killed just outside the Baghdad International Airport, just a few miles from that meeting he had held years earlier at Union 3 with General Castelvi. So that relationship changed from one of mutual tolerance to one of hostility and uh, kind of tit-for-tat shadow warfare. Um, as for the Israelis, they were not part of any campaign against ISIS. Um, they, the Israelis have flexed their muscles in Syria uh, for their own strategic reasons, which is they are con very concerned, and with good reason, about the presence of Iranian elements there and Iran's effort to funnel advanced weapon systems, particularly precision guidance, for missiles from Iran to Syria to Lebanese Hezbollah. And they've sought to disrupt uh, that arms flow and to go after some of the militia elements and Iranian elements there through um, airstrikes, not to fight ISIS, but to frustrate the Iranian project to build their Shia crescent through uh, Syria to Lebanese Hezbollah. And the U.S. has understood this, and one thing I revealed in the um, book and then later in the Wall Street Journal was that the U.S. isn't party to these Israeli airstrikes, but there is a very formal process of deconfliction for some of them, not all of them, for some of them where the Israelis submit their plans to CENTCOM, goes up to the Pentagon. The U.S. has a sort of right of veto. It's understandable because we still have forces in eastern Syria, and if the Israelis, if the Israelis carry out an airstrike there, there could be Iranian retaliation. It's it's something you would expect uh, the two sides to do, but nonetheless, they've tried to keep it under wraps. It's been facilitated also by an important change in the U.S. military structure in the Middle East, which is 
when the fight against ISIS uh, began, um, CENTCOM, the Central Command, which oversees American forces in the Middle East, included Arab countries, but it didn't include Israel. Uh, but now, on uh, his last days in office, President Trump decided to include Israel in there. And, and that's turned out, I think, to be a, a good thing in terms of helping CENTCOM do its, op its uh, operations more efficiently and also fostering some kind of eventual cooperation between Israel and Arab states in the region against Iran. You mentioned that, you know, it took about about two years or so for the you know U.S. forces and the, to, to, to really, you know, formally get organized to the point where they could could actually mount a uh, offensive against ISIS. Uh, this is around the time, of course, that, that Trump is going to then be transitioning to office. Can you talk about the uh, transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, uh, you know, any continuities between their policies or, 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 or differences? Well, it's not the U.S. forces that mounted the offensive. It was Iraqi and, and Peshmerga forces. I was there. I was part of it at the beginning and at, in the middle and at the end. And it took some time. I mean, Mosul fell in June of 2014, and the Mosul, the campaign to re claim Mosul, which the U.S. named Eagle Strike and the Iraqis called We Are Coming Nineveh, uh, was in the fall of 2016. And what had to happen was the U.S. had to help rehabilitate the Iraqi forces and equip them and train them so they could carry out, which was really a really, really difficult mission, urban warfare, uh, something the U.S. military doesn't relish, um, in a city inhabited by civilians some of whom were trapped there, some of them being held by human as human shields against an enemy that's had years to dig in and created fortified positions. And I mean, ISIS is not just a bunch of schmoes. I mean, they were pretty hardened fighters by that point. So they would take over a building and knock out the interior walls and then move around, stand back from the window so you couldn't see the muzzle flashes and, and um, try to act as snipers and and, and fight from these kind of prepared uh, positions. They had a fleet of drones that could drop grenades, which is laughable in times of the kind of air threats the U.S. would face in fighting against Russia and China, but it was enough to spook the Iraqi forces. They had suicide car bombs. I saw this firsthand. Um, it's a scary thing to see a vehicle coming your way and and uh, the proxy forces or partner forces are trying to knock it out with a missile. What if it misses? Um, and so it was a really, really hard thing. But what happened is by the end of the Obama administration, thanks a lot to the com U.S. commanders out there, first General Sean McFarland, then Steve Townsend, with the support of CENTCOM, primarily Joe Votel, who followed Austin, who was... Um, um, less risk averse than Austin. Um, the um, U.S. was able to deploy advisors around the battlefield more freely. The advisors were able to call in airstrikes. Um, all of that had uh, transpired. The larger point is as follows. When President Trump became the president, he inherited a strategy that was fully developed. He inherited an advisory structure that was fully developed where the advisors had authorities to go onto the battlefield. He didn't change the strategy. He continued the Obama strategy. And, you know, during the campaign, then candidate Trump often used to say, um, you know, when he became president, he was going to take the wraps off and he was going to knock the heck out of ISIS and his families, except he didn't use the word heck. And, um, and implying he was going to change the ROE, the rules of engagement. That never happened. I've talked to all the commanders. The rules of engagement were never changed. President Obama carried out, Pre President Trump, let me rephrase it. President Trump carried out uh, the strategy that was developed under uh, President Obama. He didn't change the strategy in any fundamental way. There was one thing that did change. And that was the degree of oversight in Washington of military operations. So 
you know, at the White House under Obama, there was very careful management of these operations, uh, sometimes too careful. They were sometimes accused of being micromanagers. For example, at the end, there was a rule they had that only three U.S. helicopters could be in Syria for 72 hours at any one time. And then they'd have to go back to Erbil. And the reason was they were trying to manage our degree of involvement. Uh, but it was frustrating for the commanders. Well, under H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor and Trump, all of that went out the window. And they just delegated those kind of decisions to the commanders in the field instead of um, reviewing them at the National Security Council. And as a consequence of that, uh, we had an ironic outcome, which is that President Trump executed President Obama's strategy, but sometimes more efficiently than President Obama himself, because he simply focused less on it. There wasn't any much less second guessing from the National Security Advisor or any of his uh, deputies. There's um, a a big uh, exception to that which is um, Trump's policies on Syria, where he twice ordered troops out of Syria and had to be talked out of it, uh, which created an enormous amount of turbulence uh, in the strategy and in the system. Uh, But with, you know, bottom line, though, the strategy that uh, Trump inherited when he became president is the one that was uh, executed to the end of uh, the physical caliphate. Can you talk about the, I, I, I know you said that, you know, ISIS is still around, the conflict is still ongoing, but, but can you talk about the, uh, the, the kind of the, the, the rollback, uh, you know, what, what led to, to success in the region? What led to the defeat of ISIS? Yes. Well, uh, the first city that was taken back was Mosul. That was really the pivotal battle. I was there at the beginning of that and, and in the middle and at the end, and that was a, horrible, horrible, uh, difficult, and really tragic in many ways uh, episode because of uh, the risk to civilians there and the destruction, particularly to West Mosul. But by July of 2017, the city was essentially taken back. And and that left Raqqa in in Syria and some other Uh, places that ISIS was defending, and that was really the next phase of the uh, campaign. And um, the U.S. had a different set of partners there, the Syrian Democratic Forces under General Maslum, and an effort was made to take Raqqa back. A lot of firepower was employed, and it got to the point where... um, uh, this U.S. was trying to prevent the ISIS uh, fighters from leaving Raqqa and capture them in the, the city and finish them off once and for all. But a lot of civilians were trapped in the city. So what happened was an episode that was not widely advertised by um, American officials, but the tribes in the area, civilians in the city, uh, made a plea to the Americans to call it off. They say, hey, listen, these guys are going to stay stay here and fight to the death and take us and our families with him. And um, again, the Delta Force commander in Syria at the time, Jeff Van Dantwerp, uh, now with the 25th Infantry Division, Hawaii, um, uh, he was approached through General Maslum and a decision was made to allow ISIS to leave Raqqa. It was not something the U.S. advertised at the time, although the BBC and some others noted it. And and there was really a caravan that allowed the ISIS fighters to flee uh, uh, rock and go deeper into the middle Euphrates River Valley, what the U.S. military calls the Merv. Um, this was an important episode because at the Pentagon, uh, Jim Mattis was talking about we were going to surround cities and apply annihilation of tactics and not let anybody out. But that just proved to be impractical in the case of Raqqa because there were too many people being hurt there who were innocent already, and it couldn't be followed through to its logical conclusion. So a decision was made to let um, the ISIS fighters leave and with the population. They went deeper into the Merv. They eventually ended up at a town called Baguz. That was the end of the line. And uh, after some fits and starts, 
the SDF with American support uh, pushed down there. And ISIS again tried to negotiate its way out. They had hostages, some of them they killed. They um, were trying to get uh, to various refugee camps in the hope of reconstituting their force and their caliphate. But uh, there wasn't going to be a negotiation at that point. That was that was the final climactic battle. Uh, what happened was uh, when U.S. forces closed, when the SDF really, with U.S. support, closed in on Baguz, um, they came to an arrangement where they took thousands of women and children out of there to a refugee camp called Al-Hol, which exists to this day. It has an excess of 50,000 people of all nationalities. Um, some hardened ISIS, probably a lot of hardened ISIS, um, some not. Um, a lot of countries won't take their citizens back. They're sort of stuck there. And it was just a military operation this week there to try to, by the SDF, to try to pull out a few ISIS elements. Uh, so many of the women and children uh, went there. A lot of the ISIS fighters went to various detention centers in northern Syria, which um, where they're held to this day, and ISIS still hopes to try to bust them out of those jails and try to reconstitute their force. So this is the situation we have. ISIS's physical caliphate is over, but now there are 50,000 plus um, women and children, some hardcore ISIS, sitting in a hole. Um, some come from various countries around the world that don't particularly want these people back. They're ISIS fighters in detention in northern Syria, guarded by the SDF. Um, what's supposed to happen with them? It's sort of an um, uneasy outcome. And, uh, you know, ISIS is still wages kind of low-level uh, sporadic attacks in Iraq and Syria. They're not entirely gone, but they're not the force um, they used to be. And, uh, you know, the U.S. learned one hard lesson from its experience of all this. Uh, Vice Biden was vice president when um, U.S. forces left Iraq in 2011, and he saw what transpired. So there's no push from the White House to take out 2,500 troops in Iraq and the 900 troops in Syria and risk a um, gradual reemergence of ISIS. They've, they've seen that movie before. They're they're not um, eager to repeat that. What's that famous line? It's like one for every one fighter you kill, you create 10 more. I don't remember what that's from. Um, I don't know if that rings well, a bell for I you. Mean, it, some of this is beyond the U.S. control. I mean, the U.S. is not responsible for all the ills in the Middle East. And the reason ISIS was able to emerge in the first place has to do with the... Um, conflict between Shia and Sunni and the sectarian policies of Maliki and people like him in Baghdad. And so when it emerged, it was able to find um, a degree of receptivity in Sunni areas in northern and western Iraq. I mean, these are problems for Iraq to solve. I don't know if it ever will. Um, but those, those are kind of deeper sectarian fault lines exist to these day to this day um we can't solve them for the iraqis and the u.s influence in iraq is much diminished these days uh, but but in the meantime uh the u.s and the coalition can at least help manage the risks which it's doing reasonably successfully uh to this point i mean isis is also a brand name so there's an isis k and Afghanistan, that's an avowed enemy of the Taliban, we consider the Taliban too soft. And uh, there are ISIS elements in Africa and, and elsewhere. Um, but uh, the ISIS force in, in Iraq and Syria is not what it used to be and, and won't be as long as there's a coalition presence and uh, a re halfway reasonable uh, leadership in in Baghdad, that's a lot to ask for because uh, Iraq's in a state of political confusion and paralysis at, at this point. 
but um, we'll have to keep our eye and see where that, how that comes out. Uh, my final question, I, I, I know you, you work as a, as a reporter and, and you're still covering uh, many of these issues, but, but what are you, are you working on any, any new book? Uh, what reporting are you doing just to, to let our listeners know what they might expect to see from you in the future? Well, uh, one point I like to make about this is um, I think that what happened in the fight against ISIS has relevance for the future. I don't think it's just a one-off or an episode that occurred in the past. And for those who are part of it, you, know, you can read about it. If you weren't part, no, no reason to study it. I think there is a reason to study it. First of all, it succeeded. And there's a big lessons learned exercise at the Pentagon now to look at why Afghanistan failed and did fail. It was a strategic failure. Well, the war against ISIS was by any reasonable standard a success. And um, it's unfortunate the Pentagon has not to this day done a serious examination of its own history in fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria, because um, there, there are some lessons to be learned about the way advisors, we've covered some of that, the way advisors are to be used, where air, air can be carried out, the kind of partners uh, that are it's important to have, um, how the importance of denying an enemy a sanctuary, something we were never able to achieve in Afghanistan, has some relevance for the future. So um, in fu if there are future wars in the Middle East, we're not going to send tens of thousands of troops back there. We're going to do a variation of by, with, and through. We're going to work with a local partner. We're going to have to apply some of the um, tactics and, and strategies that were employed in the fight against ISIS if this were to transpire. So it's unfortunate the Pentagon's not studying something that worked right um, because on the assumption we'll never have to do this again because uh, forever is a really long time. Second, I think that some of the things that were done there uh, have relevance perhaps outside the Middle East. I mean, uh, if you look at... Ukraine now. That's not a classic by, with, and through operation because we don't have advisors work, working with the Ukrainian forces. We're not carrying out airstrikes. But it, it could be looked at as a sort of diluted, attenuated version of by, with, and through. Who trained the Ukrainian forces, U.S. Special Forces, among others, 10th Special Forces Group, who's giving them the intelligence about where the Russians are located, the U.S. is who's giving them the weapons to strike those targets, the U.S. and other European nations, and the munitions and the precision weapons, you know, guidance, precision-guided systems like the HIMARS, the, with the Gimler's rockets. It, it's, a, it's a variation of by, with, and through. So this strategy not only has utility in places where we have come up against foes in ungoverned spaces, it may have utility in great power conflicts where our adversary is a nuclear armed superpower we don't want to come up against directly. We want to support the partner who is. So that's my sermon on the, the relevance of some of the things that happened in this war for future conflicts. I mean, right now I'm, I'm doing my correspondence job at, at the Wall Street Journal, and I'm very much focused like everybody else in the Pentagon is these days on what they call great power conflict, which is uh, China and Russia. And those are really the um, dangers the uh, and threats the Pentagon is trying to transition to now. They've always been out there, but there's a sense in the Defense Department that it really needs to um, pick up the pace and improve its game. It's going to be able to deter uh, China in the Western Pacific, and even against Russia, which has pr proved to be uh, fairly inept in Ukraine, but still has uh, um, a major uh, nuclear weapons arsenal, the equal of the U.S., and all sorts of other assets. So that's what that's what I've been pretty much focusing on. I don't have a yet another book in the offing. I've, I've done four since the first three with general trainer, but four since um, 1991. And each one has been a multi-year um, endeavor. And uh, 
and pretty much of a, a draining um, experience, but but from my own personal standpoint, well worthwhile. First of all, I learned new things that I never would have known, and frankly, many other people would never have known if we hadn't dug into all this. And also because I think it's important to establish the record of what transpired. It's, it's not always easy to do that within the parameters of a newspaper due to space and time, but it's something you can do in long form and a book. And, and so that's what um, I set out to do, but I haven't yet picked up. I haven't had the courage to, to think about writing uh, yet another one at this point, but um, I'm certainly keeping my eye on where events are going. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. I'm sure our, our listeners will, will have found you know, everything that you had to say very interesting. Uh, the book is Degrade and Destroy uh, from FSG. I had recommend people uh, check it out. Thank you. Thank you.